Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future is one of the longest running writing competitions in the world with four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Elrond Hubbard. The Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the US, Canada, the UK, and South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. Today's guest is Rebecca Hardy, a pen name for Rebecca Denise. So I initially met her after she wrote a blog post on the cameras of Battlefield Earth. She was subsequently a guest just over a year ago with her debut novel, House of Lost Wives. She's a writer, photographer, and artist working in London while residing in West Sussex, England. So she just came up with her second novel, The Merchant's Daughter, again, written in first person. And uh, I was really interested to talk to her about this. We hooked up when I was in London um, last fall and uh, doing some publisher meetings there. And so we, we met at her uh, at the camera shop she works at. And there I interviewed her boss and not her. So we promised a later date. So this is that later date come to pass. So I really wanted to address this subject in first person because I've been routinely cautioned about writing in the first person. And I wanted to revisit the subject with somebody who successfully uses first person narrative. With that said, welcome Rebecca or Becky. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Yeah. And it's great that you made your second novel come out there. And um, so I got lots of questions as I sent you um, in advance that we can uh, address and um, no intention of putting you on the spot, but really wanting to provide some insight to other writers who are looking to take their next step. For sure. So just as a quick overview, uh, give me a little bit about your history that led up to your being successful in publishing. So I started writing at a very, very early age and most of what I wrote just stayed on my laptop or in notebooks and didn't really go anywhere. But the goal was always to become a published author at some point. And in about 2016, I worked on a project. I wrote three books, young adult urban fantasy, and I thought I would try the independent publishing route. It was starting to become a thing. I will say that it wasn't as well established as it is now. So I learned the hard way, the pitfalls of of indie publishing and and the amount of work that goes into self-publishing. And honestly, the support structure that there is now for indie authors is phenomenal. But sort of eight plus years ago, it wasn't really there. And um, I definitely felt like I was sort of somewhere out in the middle of the the badlands, not knowing what on earth I was doing. So I that project is still, I mean, I call it a project, but those three novels are still up on Amazon. People still buy them occasionally and read them and enjoy them. But I sort of changed tack with with my writing and my writing style. So what you've read is my historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Always has a little element of, I would say, a fantastical element in it. It's not necessarily pure fantasy, but I always lean into the magical realism side of things. That's stories that I love. So those end up in my stories too. And in 2019, I think it was, I started writing what became the House of Lost Wives, decided that that was the book that I wanted to traditionally publish, Right. went through the query process, got myself an agent after much much persistence, got myself a very excellent agent. And she very quickly managed to sell that that book. So that came out in October of 22. And my publisher, Headline Accent, said they would like to see my next project when it was ready. So that's what became The Merchant's Daughter. I pretty much started writing The Merchant's Daughter almost the second I had penned the end on uh, The House of Lost Wives. So for me, those two books do kind of go hand in hand. There are a couple of crossover characters. Although they're not a series, you can read them together or you can read them individually. And they kind of feel like they're set in the same universe, if you like. Yeah, it's definitely the same universe. And it's definitely, I guess it's the point that, at least in commonality, was 
the girl at the end of the first, the House of Lost Wives, the girl in the carriage mm-hmm. as she's driving by was the girl that now becomes the main character of the second book. That's right. Okay, good. So, you picked that up. That's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it makes a big difference when I'm able to read the books and know what I'm talking about. And it makes for much, <laughs> sure. much better interviews. Like, oh, I better practice what I'm going to say here. <laughs> so now, so this, these books you talked about, you know, the Regency period. So that's a very specific time of, of London history between, I, I looked it up, it's between 1795 and 1837 in the UK. And right. um, so mystery, Regency. The second one is less paranormal than the first one. For sure. Yeah. Her sense of being able to tell when a person's lying lying or not is something that is very clear, you know, to or that is the paranormal aspect of the second one here. But I'm just curious now on Regency period, it would seem that Although I'm this, I'm I'm a neophyte in that whole area. That people that are not, that are more established, would pick it apart if you didn't have proper research done. Tell me, tell me about that a bit. Yeah. So with with all of my books, I will have the thread of the idea first, and then I will spend anything from three months to a year researching. And sometimes it's a matter of just getting a grounding of of the time period and kind of figuring out, okay, well, what did they eat and what did they wear and yeah. what was a day to day to more finer details. And sometimes those details never end up in a book. I mean, I've, I've gone down research wormholes almost where I've wanted to say, you know, the, the pine floorboards or something. And then I've had to work out, well, actually, would they have imported pine into that area during that time period? And in the end, it makes zero difference to anyone whether or not. But for me, it's important that it's historically accurate. So right. so I'm very thorough with my research. Um, I would like to think that if someone was an expert in that area, they wouldn't be able to find anything wrong. But I also have a very talented editor and, and line editor. And both of them have on occasion said, oh, you know, you said gas lamp in this, you know, in this chapter, but actually gas lamps came about two years later or something. And then I've managed to, you know, catch that before it goes to publishing. So I think we're pretty much there. The next project that I'm working on, the research is in the years kind of time span. But when that does eventually come to pass, people will understand why mm-hmm. <laughs> there was so much research done on that. Um, Regency has always been a, a time period in England that I've had a very high affinity for. And I think that's partly because things were a little bit simplified and there was a huge amount of gentrification of civilization. You like I I read books written in earlier time periods than that and you look at the Tudors and you look at the Elizabethans and they were pretty wild people. And uh Regency, although they were they were wild, they were a little more reserved, but they hadn't gotten to the the reserved level of the Victorians, which is a whole other thing. So I particularly like that time period, but I also like exploring the fact that women had a very specific role in that time and the fact that by their nature, women do not normally hold to certain standards. So what would these characters that perhaps don't agree with the way that things are, with the normality of things, how would they act and how would they be treated? And it's their stories, really, that I feel like I'm writing. Yes, and that leads me to the next part here first person. So um, why do you write in first person? I know it's, well, we talked about this before, but I'll just straightway just ask you and then we'll take it from there. Sure. So first person for me always feels like I'm connecting the reader with the main character a little faster than if I were writing in third person. I used to write a lot in third person. And I also think that a lot of traditional fantasy and sci-fi books were written in third person. Um, And then in more recent years, I found the stories that I felt more engaged with or that I was more drawn to were written in first person. Sometimes the books where you really feel the immediacy of what's happening to the main character are written in first person present tense because you feel like it's happening to you whilst you're reading about the character. Um, And that's something 
that I also really enjoy writing in, but for historical fiction, it doesn't always work. So mm. first person, but, uh, but past tense right. fits quite well. And you sort of get a look at what the main character is thinking and feeling without having to guess why they make the decisions they make. You can kind of see their rationale beforehand. And it's not that that can't be done in third person. It's just the way that I like the reader to view my characters. Yeah, well, definitely with first person, you have much more intimacy and you said you can get into the person's head if done well. Otherwise, yes. you can get yourself out of the book really fast too, if not done well. For sure. Yeah, you can lose it. It's because I'm, I'm curious about this and how you've come to transition from third to first. And I think past tense is, I, I'm, I know there's people that pull off present tense, but past tense is more natural too. When you talk even from first person, and Orson Scott Card on our live workshops that we do on every quarter with him, he talks about like, you know, you talk in first person past tense. I walked to the store. You don't say, I walked to the store. I buy a uh, soda. I eat my sandwich. You know, it's yeah. like when you're telling somebody, you're actually talking to somebody, you're actually talking using past tense. That's very true. You know, so... It's much more natural just based on the way you actually speak to go first person past instead of first person present. But I imagine it's very much a point of you know, whatever person wants to be able to do, but being able to, as a reader, to be able to accept it. When I talk to somebody, it is, you talk like, oh yeah, yeah, I went to the event, you know, talk, you know, or I'm going to go to the event, but when talking about them, it's, it's first person past. It was interesting because I just finished proofreading uh, Rise of the Future Volume 40. And I think eight of the 12 stories were written first person. It was like, I've never seen that much. So I was just curious if there's a new trend that's happening. Definitely, it was very comfortable reading your story, you know, and I felt very much more um, connected to your characters from doing that. And first person just doesn't mean like the main character. You can have multiple characters first person. And that's yes. something that people need to understand as well. It's just that. Exactly. There is a, a project that I have been working on on the side, which may or may not come to fruition, but I hope it will at some point. And that follows two points of view or POVs as we call right. them for short. So you have two points of view. You have one character who's doing one thing and another character who's doing another thing. Both of those points of view are in first person and the idea is that the reader will understand, even though these two characters do interact with each other a lot, they'll understand why this person reacts that way and why this character, you know, makes those choices that they make. Yeah. And I do think that multiple point of view books are easier to pull off or at least easier to communicate if you write in first person. It's There's no hard, fast rules about it, but um but also sometimes it it's like picking the right thing for the story. When I first drafted a couple of scenes from The House of Lost Wives, it was in third person. And when I started to string those together into what was eventually going to become the story, I thought to myself, no, this doesn't work because I don't really feel like I'm there with her. I don't feel like my readers are going to understand her thought process or why she decides to do this or how angry she is at this situation and by putting her into first person suddenly it kind of opened the story up for me and it yeah. made made the whole thing flow yeah it would um that is a story that writing initiate third i would have been too disconnected from the story i wouldn't have been yeah. able to appreciate what she was going through and also just i wouldn't have seen more you know, what the times were like then for a woman, you know, trying to survive. And in this case, take on more roles and more duties than what was normally uh, allowed, you know, yes. by the uh, by the men at that time. And, and these were, you know, the daughter and, and the mother, you know, were uh, definitely did not stick to the mold of, of <laughs> at least what was written about as, as women at that time. I'm always, right. I'm always fascinated at how you have a perception of what people are like at a certain time period, mm -hmm. but there's an underlying, like, no matter what, you know, you talk about the Victorian, you know, how it got so, I mean, it, it got ridiculous, but then that surface, that's a, the social veneer was 
was that, but underneath it was like the lasciviousness, the mm. amount of, of perversions that were going on were no less than other time periods. It's just that they became suppressed. It's probably made them even more uh, vicious as a thing because then when you run a big um, moral, you know, can't, shouldn't, you know, that type of thing is you're going to get people dramatizing all the more. Yes, you know, for sure. But um, yeah, I was just curious on this because your characters in first person become real. I can identify with them, even though for me, it was a, this has been a new genre, mm. you know? And so like getting into it and reading it and the second book was definitely more, you know, Regency mystery. And the mystery part was pretty cool, you know? So that's the thing that kind of like hooked me first. <laughs> and then I was able to appreciate the, the reasons as I was getting into the story and getting to see what these characters were like. And uh, what they're having to deal with, that was good. The first, your first book, fantasy was just like right in my face and it was great. You know, it was easy mm. for me to be able to just jump in there. And the second one, the fantasy is less strong point of the, of your story, but then the story became stronger, you know? Yeah. So that sure. was, that was really good on that. So for those listening to this podcast, uh, Becky has, now you write, you write as, as Rebecca. Rebecca Hardy um, is my nom de plume, and that was a kind of joint decision between myself and my publishers, actually, mostly because I had put out these, um, because I had put out this YA trilogy as Rebecca Danese, you know, that was under my own name, and they thought, well, actually, this is something completely different. This is definitely a more grown-up story. This is an adult series, not because, you know, it's got anything sort of wild, but it, they are grown-up themes yeah. that these people go sure. through quite a lot. Um, and they wanted to kind of mark it as, a, as an adult debut. And so to do that, in order to do that, we use my maiden name, which is Rebecca Hardy. And also it kind of fits with the Regency time period and everything you know it sounds like I would write historical fiction <laughs> <laughs> ah yes I recognize that name she was yes. she was made to write that yes that's right now the when you first the first book was was mystery fantasy was stronger fantasy and then it's kind of like gone a little bit more the romance, at least the romance caught me more in the second book than did the first one, even though there was romance in the first one. The first one was more mystery fantasy, like, wow, that was the Lost Wives and what is this thing here and, and the fantastical ghosts and stuff like that that was mm -hmm. happening in the first book, which was way cool. So what prompted you to change direction to get even more along the Regency mystery romance I don't know if it's standard type or the normal since so said this is my first dabbling into that genre, but it yeah. seems to be a bit of a change of course. A little bit. And I think that that's partly because of the characters. I mean, with, with Lizzie in the first book, she had a very specific ability, you know, she could see ghosts and that was the paranormal element of that with uh, Jenny, who is the main character in the second book. Mm -hmm. Her gift, if you like, is the fact that she can sense whether people are lying or not, or deceiving, or just not fully being um, telling the truth. And I've always kind of wanted to pick these abilities for my characters that could be believable. Like I, I feel like that's something that actually could totally be believable. You could, you can kind of tell when someone is lying to you, but if you imagine that as almost like a superpower, um, sure that someone can tell when someone yeah. is being deceptive you I, I feel like that's plausible in the real world so I wouldn't have necessarily even called it fantasy um my first book it's interesting because I had some family members who are very sort of spiritual and they you know they believe in ghosts and I'm not saying that I don't at all but it's interesting how much how much attention they kind of put on the the paranormal side. So again, for me, it wasn't a completely wild, fantastical idea that someone could potentially speak to or see ghosts. Um, and so again, with with Jenny, the story it didn't fit to put ghosts in there because that wasn't her ability. But right. to put in almost like an adventure style subplot 
thrown in there. Um, that that was kind of where I wanted her to go. That was her whole purpose was she wanted to kind of go and experience life outside of London. And then circumstances made it impossible for her to do that. And and how her ability helps her to figure out what's happened to her family and the, the situation that they've been put into. And I don't think it was necessarily intentional when I started the story for it to be so different from the first one. But the the romance side of things I definitely wanted to keep in there and it was always going to be part of the plot it was always going to be a marriage of convenience and whether or not these people can make it work or whether or not they end up going their separate ways um I feel like there always has to be a little bit of romance in every story it's like <laughs> you know it's like sunshine just putting it in there yeah. um and for this one yes it was more of the plot because of the marriage of convenience kind of trope if you like yeah um, in the first book, the romance is almost a subplot that isn't the main part of the story. That's not the purpose of the story, but it's nice that it's there. So I, I will continue to put that that mm-hmm. romance plot line in into everything that I write. I think that there should always be a little bit of a, a love story in every every book. Every book that I enjoy has it. So that's why. Okay, good. So is there a is this a a two-part series is there going to be more now in this time period with with um, <laughs> her younger brother that was long lost that finally came back and we all discovered <laughs> it was really there because we thought that it was lost at sea but dot, dot, dot. Uh, so interestingly enough yes there is a character from the merchant's daughter it's not the long lost brother uh, there is a character from the merchant's daughter uh, that that is the story that I am currently working on you know to give any other writers who might find it helpful to know, I know that possibly my publisher and my editor might end up listening to this, but that's fine. <laughs> I'll say it now and, and it will be out there. Um, but that book that I, the book that I'm, I finished writing and sent to my agent, she has asked me to, to reduce it down a little bit. It is the biggest thing I've ever written. It's about 160,000 words. Um, it's taken me start to finish probably about three years to to write in full. It started with veins of an idea and then I had to do so much research in order to really pull it off. And I'm very, very proud of the product that it is, but I do need to cut it down a little bit in order to make sure that my publisher will want to read it. Otherwise, unfortunately, as the way in traditional publishing, they might go, no, it's too long and, and we don't want it. Yeah. So you do lose a little bit of your... I would say decision-making power when you go down the traditional publishing route. But the benefit of it is that you have incredibly talented editors who will take a story and they'll say, you know what, this is fantastic. Let's just make sure that this bit is clarified or actually this doesn't work or whatever. And I've been super fortunate that both of my, I had two different editors for book one and book two, and both of them were fantastic so professional and knew exactly what each story needed to make it perfect so with book three it it is still in the same universe there will be some familiar characters more familiar in this one possibly than there was from book one to two um but yeah I'm, i'm hoping that if someone has read the house of lost wives and then they pick up the merchant's daughter that they will enjoy the next book just as much if not a little bit more Good. All right. Well, that's pretty a little teaser there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just I was just uh, curious in that thing there because um, this is the Rise of Feature podcast. I looked at we had earlier winners back from Volume Four: Joe Beverly and Nancy Farmer. And um, Joe Beverly unfortunately passed, but she went from science fiction fantasy to writing the um, uh, romance, historical romance, and very very popular. She was a very successful. Won many many of the. Uh, top awards in, in uh, the Romance Writers of America. And, um, and then Nancy evolved to YA and children. So I was just curious if there's some, you know, I got my, I sunk my teeth in, in science fiction and fantasy, and now I'm ready to move on to, you know, traditional type, you know, romance type thing. But anyway, so you've explained yourself quite well. Oh, good. Yes. I think that there will always be an element of something a little fantastical in every story. There's always a character that perhaps can do something that isn't readily explained. Right. Or, I mean, I have 
probably my next three or four projects all mostly figured out and all of them have that element in there and I think that's kind of going to be my that's my thing <laughs> is to to make sure there's always a, a a small nod to fantasy considering that that was what I also cut my teeth on and uh, was kind of born and raised on my favorite books were, were all written by fantasy authors so uh, I feel like it at least needs to be acknowledged in everything that I write that's good just an interesting as a as a sidebar here when Aaron Hubbard created Writers of the Future, he picked science fiction and fantasy as the genres. And when he wrote Battlefield Earth, he referred to science fiction as the herald of possibility. But the same thing with fantasy, you've got that possibility. And you can also have, even though there's definitely the bad magician, the bad this, the bad that, you can also have, which is what we do with Writers of the Future, you have that uptick. You can have things and come out good, you know, and it can portend a good future, a bright future, a better future. And that's one thing that Elvin Hubbard was definitely all about. And um, I definitely saw that with your story there. It was, you're, I don't think you're intentionally trying to be moralistic or trying to, to, to preach, but I definitely got that. They were doing the right thing and doing the right thing can have the, a, a good ending, a good conclusion. I mean that your final scene there, the final action scene was like that was. I was like, how's this going to go? Because that's I don't really consider, I hadn't considered, you know, Mister Romance to be something that's going to be like this big action scene. You know, like what's that going to be? But then <laughs> that was pretty cool. I was like, wow. And I, I was like, okay, hold the presses here. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish this thing here before I get to the denouement. I was just I got to see what happens here. I mean, she's, <laughs> she becomes a very kick-ass chick, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, she does. I like my, I like the heroines to stick up for themselves and have, have the ability to do that for sure. Yeah. And it, it was definitely within, um, it was believable, you know, the way you built her up as a character, you know, so it was believable that she was able to do what she did, Fantastic. you know, that she didn't exceed what was believable mm-hmm. and what she did there. But anyway, that was something, because I've seen this so much in, as a result of what Elvin Hubbard created in Writers of the Future, just so much that type of storytelling, you know, that gets um, recognized. Sometimes a lot of stuff where it's not the good ending, you know, as a, as a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. you know. But even then when they have that, it's, it has the, the uptick at the end. We don't do stuff that doesn't have the uptick, you know. No. And, some, and sometimes it's way up. But, and that's something that his story. So I know you, were, you did that one article on Battlefield Earth which um, that book is a definite, it's not an uptick. It's like a, it's a, it takes it life to a new level, you know, that this ultimately the human spirit will survive, which is something that yeah. is standard across all of Hubbard's works. Absolutely. Which, by the way, do you have a favorite Hubbard fiction book? Oh, it's so tough because um, <laughs> there's, there's so many of them. I think the one that I have read the most, believe it or not, is Mission Earth. I have read all of those at least three or four times. Wow. Um, so I feel like that one for me, I know it's 10 books, so I don't know if I could pick one book from the 10 that is my favorite, but yes, I, I have read those a lot. But Battlefield Earth, I've read at least twice, I think. Um, well, you've already given me some good sound bites. About, tell me something you're about Mission Earth, because we're going to be coming out with that, and I'm always looking for some good blurbs I can use. Oh yeah. I mean Mission Earth is one of those one of those books where or one of those series I should say where when you start reading it you think okay this is science fiction and by the time you finish reading it it's like a it's like a documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think when I first started reading it I read I think I read all of it the first time in about 2007. And when I got to the end of it, I remember saying to um, to the, my roommate at the time, this is the wildest thing I have ever read. This is like beyond the realms of imagination. I have no idea how he came up with this story. And then I read it again a few years later and I was like, oh, actually, I mean, yes, it is sci-fi, but but actually it's very believable. And then I read it again after my second son was born. So that would have been about 2015, 2016. And um, 
and <laughs> it didn't feel like sci-fi very much. But by those last few books, I thought, no, that's that's pretty much reality for us now. So anyway, it's I don't know if it was supposed to be portentous, <laughs> but uh, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. There are also a lot of his short stories um, to the stars, for example, which isn't necessarily a short story, but is a shorter Nevada. novel, which, yeah. which I love one thing um that i do find as you say is that everything does end with with some kind of uplift and i've never been a great believer of writing stories that make the reader feel miserable at the end of the book so that's something that i think i learned very much from him from Elron hubbard and from all the books that i've read of his is always you know, there's always a good outcome, even if it's not necessarily the outcome that the reader expects. It there there mm-hmm. is always some positivity there, and I feel like that's it's almost my duty as an author to to kind of keep that going. Good, well, that's a good answer, and thank you for that on Mission Earth being no duly noted. Yes, <laughs> time code marked. Okay, good. <laughs> so now on the subject of research, I just want to revisit that a bit more. Sure. So. How do you go about doing your research? Depends a little bit on what I'm researching. So when it came to the House of Lost Wives, I spent a lot of time in in the UK. We're very fortunate. We have beautiful historical houses. Um, the one that I kind of based Ambletime Manor on is an incredibly, I mean, it's a gorgeous National Trust property. So it's owned by the National Trust, which is essentially this charity organization that looks after older properties um, in all over the UK. Mm-hmm. And it's not too far from me. It's called Petworth House. It's got about 200 rooms, something like that. That's and for the, real. Yeah, yeah, for real. It exists as a place. It has this beautiful deer park and forest and lake. Um, and although Ambletie is a, is a lot more creepier, Petworth is very well maintained. Um, the whole concept of going into this place where there is art on every wall and these, you know, little pieces of history and of the previous owners' travels and things, that that sort of space that's steeped in history was was very inspirational for me. So I did a lot of trawling through houses like that, but Petworth was definitely my, my biggest inspiration. Um, when it came to The Merchant's Daughter, a lot of research on the subject of merchants and ships and and things like that i i did a stint at the national maritime museum just to see how that would you know how things were during that time period and uh that without spoiling anything definitely helped with my next project that i was working that i'm working (laughs) on and uh also i mean i had i'm trying to think now i spent a little bit of time in greece which inspired me to write the character of Erasmus, who is the love interest. And the history that I learned while I was there and the guides that I had were amazing. But the people that I spoke to and the and the stories that they told me and kind of understanding the temperament of the Greek people as well really inspired me to do that current character and his family justice. So I hope that communicates in the book because it does. Yeah, because that whole area, that whole Mediterranean area in, in Greece is is absolutely phenomenal. Now, one character I really liked, she's a small character, it's a she, and um, she was the um, the girl who dressed up like the boy. She was always trying to come like them. She's the one that was a thief and was able to, she's always there, you know, to help out. I, I love her. She's like... A great character you created there. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you you may see more of her. At oh, some I point. hope so. I hope so. She's she's like she's definitely, you know, I, I like her personality. I like her sense of her own sense of of her moral compass and her guide what she does and what's right, what's wrong. And it's interesting on that because in Mission Earth, you're talking about that too. Like you've got some of the big characters. You've got. Um, the uh, the gal that runs the the mafia mm-hmm. in New York, who's yeah. one of uh, General Heller's main friends. You know, she's she picks up his mother hat. You know, and that's right. You know, yeah. you kind of go, wow, you're you've got you've got your training. Like, okay, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, but yet when you look under the covers of what's right, a lot of times it isn't right. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And so you look at her and what she does, she's against the drugs and she's against various things. And she has her gambling stuff that she sees too. But, uh, you know, that whole sense of like what you normally think is, okay, you got to, this is right. And this is wrong. This is plus, this is minus it's black and white, two valued logic. And, Owen Hubbard definitely doesn't have that. He's, you know, he did in some of his more serious researches talked about multi-valued logic. You know, yeah. we have varying degrees of right and wrong, you know, because yeah. what's right for future, you know, construction is bad for the people that live in that house right now, you know, so tearing yeah. down the home, but making it better for the big high rise for expansion, it's not right or wrong. It depends on the, your perspective. So it's, he works out like, the, you know, what's the greatest good? What's the greatest benefit? you know, to, to life. And so I see this stuff. And so like with, you know, this character and some of your characters there, like they're, what they do, you know, there's some type of buccaneering piracy type stuff going, you know, <laughs> there's free, quite a bit know, of that, <laughs> but they draw the line on slave trade, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there they're like, nope, that's doesn't cut yeah. it. So it's, it gets into that. It's not a clear right and wrong. It's just like varying degrees of stuff. And you see that a lot in life, you know, and it makes a problem for people to to deal with life when you can't handle it like it's it's either right or wrong. No, you know? absolutely. And I think that also that sort of morally gray character, if you like, is is quite real to a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people suffer with dilemmas of, well, you know, my life took these twists and turns and I've ended up in this situation. But what what positivity can I take out of that? Or what do I do with that experience? Right. Um, and yes, there are a lot of characters who in The Merchant's Daughter could What's be her name? I just went blank on her name. What's her name? Her name's Lei, which is Chinese, yeah. So she's um she's great. Anyway, she's yeah. she's she, one that uh, can she can break into any safe and she can do yeah. you know, stuff and <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And um so with a lot of these characters, they they do to society look like criminals, but actually when you look at what they're trying to do, they're breaking some laws in order to to help people. Um or I mean in the case of the of the slave trade at the time, I'd done a lot of research into the subject of um the Barbary Corsairs and the amount of slaves they they had moved and enslaved over a million people during their reign. And um, it is something that that did happen that a mm-hmm. lot of historians don't really talk about. There's not a lot of focus on that. And it was something that I thought, okay, it's not to, to make light of it, but also to bring it to people's attention that it did happen. Yeah. And what people don't know, which, you know, is that is happening even more. So one of the biggest grossing um, movies of 2023 was that, that movie on, um, on the uh, slave trade of uh, what's happening. Price of freedom. Yeah. Price of freedom. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's still a very much happening thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really like your little, at, at the end, your little, um, you know, about the story and for for more information, how you, you referred to, um, was it, was it, um, so there's um, on human rights you talked about that uh youth for human rights youth for human rights yes youth for human rights that um youth for human rights is a charity that that works massively on the subject of educating people on human rights and also obviously has a lot of information about modern slavery and yeah. um and child trafficking and everything like that and also antislavery.org i mean if people need information or are curious um the data is out there they just need to to go in search of it yeah Yeah. exactly it's not being widely promoted it's not being massively talked about but although these books are historical i did want to make a point at the end of my book that it still happens and that there is information available i believe that industry grosses more money than even the drug trade is that what or is it second right behind i mean it's it's amazing how much money it's right at the same level as, as the illicit drug trade yeah it's massive yeah, it's real. Anyway, that's not the purpose of this podcast, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I got that at the end of your book, you make a little, you know, for more information on a senior because you touched on this and it was what they were trying to do was ultimately good to be able to to stop the, the slave trade in UK and help try to spread it to other countries where it was still very much a legal uh, form of trade. Mm-hmm. 
and these uh, aristocracy within the UK were taking advantage of it to be able to you know, increase their wealth. And yeah. these people here were trying to expose it. And what they had to overcome was, was amazing because you've got, you would trust the word of a, of a commoner against a gentleman, even though the gentleman mm. was the one that was totally up to his eyeballs in slave trade. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's um it's definitely I mean, I think that with with a lot of fiction there is a huge amount of truth in it. And mm -hmm. you know, even I remember well, I, when I was writing that blog article for Battlefield Earth and we were talking I was talking about the the small cameras um that the cyclos would use to to obviously spy on the humans they'd use them as like a run-of-the-mill thing and at the time when Elrond Hubbard wrote it it was complete science fiction the idea of having a small remote camera that could send a signal you know even a few meters away let alone like miles away and now that's we carry those around in our pockets yeah <laughs> so, um so I think that we can learn a lot from fiction and a lot from literature even if it's not, you know, considered necessarily scientific or even if it's historical fiction as opposed to historical fact. Right. Th there is definitely a lot to be learned. Yeah, it, it, there's definitely on that. And in terms of, of for people that aren't familiar with Regency uh, mystery romance, describe that genre and its part in literature. And like I said, I've, I've not really read it there's um i know there's some major authors and it's a huge genre um yeah it's huge but it is massive i think it's been made all the more popular by bridgerton because of netflix but obviously the original regency romance writer was jane austen mm -hmm. she she is the og um i i still i mean i've i, mean, I she has vampires so i mean of course <laughs> She's very right. famous. Yeah, absolutely, that was her. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, the amount of times that Pride and Prejudice has been written and rewritten, or that concept has been taken off and and used as inspiration for stories, is is more numerous than even I realised. As I, I follow a lot of accounts that are massive Jane Austen fans, and they'll make parallels between Pride and Prejudice and some movie that was just you know, some generic rom-com that I didn't even put two and two together. But her influence is very far and wide-reaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, as I say, with Bridgerton, because Netflix took that on and turned it into the phenomenon that it is, I think that Regency has had a bit more of a spotlight in recent years. It's not necessarily the first time period that people think of when they go historical fiction, but it is a subgenre of historical fiction. So if you are a historical fiction reader, you might particularly like the Tudor period or the Elizabethan period, or you might prefer sort of World War One and Two stories or something in between. So Regency for me is is enough before technology that things are still fairly simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't we don't even have you know, anything beyond a fireplace and candles to light your home. We don't have telephones, anything like that. Everybody writes communication using letters. Uh, and there's a very specific set of of societal rules to follow. You don't just call upon a person. You send your card beforehand, things like that. There's There's little rules and etiquette that I think in this day and age, seems completely wild to people but um but it's not so long ago that you know it's not it's not the middle ages people aren't dying in their 30s from dysentery or whatever it's mm -hmm. it, we we'd kind of refined technology enough or at least medicine enough that people had reasonably long lives so um anyway there is definitely something that appeals to me about that time period i i kind of move forward and backwards in time but it always sticks around then and I think that's mainly just because there's no technology and that really appeals to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it appeals to my simple soul <laughs> well also you've got a good sense of people too like it requires an understanding if you're going to sell that you've mm. got to make real people because you can't yes. you're not hiding behind you know he's got his mech suit and he's going to go ahead and take on the the uh invading you know <laughs> forces yeah exactly exactly 
So on being able to write in that time period, what recommendations do you have? Because there's, you know, you've got the, the alternate history, which is one thing, which yours isn't because you're not changing history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're digging in that area. But what are some of the, what would you say are, are tips on how to successfully pull off writing in a time period that is not, is not ours that we're familiar with? What, like what makes it work and what made it work for that your publisher say, okay, good. We dig this Becky chick. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously in an ideal world, one would have a degree in every time period and would have done a whole history major on that particular time period. Unfortunately, that that doesn't often happen. Um, all of my history qualifications all came from World War One, World War Two time period. That was just what was on the curriculum. That's what we ended up studying. But If you find a time period that you're really drawn to and you know that you can kind of sit with characters from that that time for a lengthy period without getting bored of them, I would say that's a good place to start. I sort of, when when I get into a particular time period, particularly with Regency, I do try and consume as much as I can written around that time period. I will read books by authors that write in that time period. I will read history books from multiple sources, I will usually try and go to, I mean, in in England, as I say, we're quite fortunate, we have lots of history preserved. So we can go to historical houses, we can go and see how things were done. We've even got, you know, old sort of Georgian villages that do a full reenactment of how a traditional farm would be run (laughs) pre, you know, tractors and, and trucks and stuff like that. So, um, Immersing oneself, I think, is definitely key just because then you can kind of get into your character's head a little bit more. I think I kind of wrote out when I did The House of Lost Wives, I wrote out just some really key character points like this is what they would wear. This is what they would eat. This was the average day. And then just kept that in mind throughout everything that I was writing. I know that um, Maggie O'Farrell, who's a fantastic historical fiction writer, she wrote one of the best-selling books, I think it was for last year or the year before, Hamnet, which has now been taken to Broadway, um, which was set in Shakespearean times. It's about Shakespeare and his wife and their, their children. She had actually gone on a full course on how to make food during that time period and the amount of work that went into just the family's daily bread and the the daily washing and everything and she had immersed herself in that by actually doing a kind of research trip and living it for for a little while so I mean obviously if that's within an author's means then fantastic but if you can't do that then anything which really gives you the subject matter and and lets you feel like you're you're in it for a time period will just it will only help right that's um that's actually good, and on um so on the subject of reading, so I'm glad you said that because that's I'm, I found it to be really really important. I mean, I've obviously read a lot just to keep up with uh, the weekly podcast here. Yes. But um, do you stick within just one genre, or do you read across multiple, or how do you do your reading when you're, um, when you're able to? Because I realized too, you've also got. You're maintaining a full-time job. You just got started, I think, on something else. You've got your yeah. your mom with two kids, and you've got um, your writing career. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, some yeah. somehow somehow I managed to read about a hundred books last year, um, and most of those were on Audible uh, or in some audio format. I have a library that luckily also does audio books, so. I am very spread across multiple genres. I will read literary fiction. My main, I would say, consumption, if you like, is fantasy um, or the subgenre of that now, which is romanticy. So I do read a lot of romance, and um, but it's usually in the fantasy kind of genre. Um, but I will also read a lot of sci-fi. I read a fair bit of sci-fi, quite a lot of Andy Weir last year um, and a couple of others as well. I read a lot of Brandon Sanderson last year. There's there's quite, it's funny because I tend to, if I find an author that I really like, even if they write in multiple genres, I'll end up reading everything that they've written. And I do find that to be 
the thing that kind of makes the decision for me as to what I'm going to read. But I think about 60% of what I read is fantasy and then the rest is literary fiction or historical fiction. I get it. Good. That, I mean, that, that's, that's probably a little bit of, if you have a bell curve, you're probably at the very far edge down there with that 2%, 3%, you know, band of, of people who read books as authors. Yes. You know, <laughs> but that's good. That one, that's one thing that's good about audiobooks. You can, be, you can multitask a lot easier with, with an audiobook. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when I was writing, when I mean, when I was drafting The Merchant's Daughter, I was using my train commutes for yeah. that very much. So as as with The House of Lost Wives, um, now my commute is mainly driving. So I get to listen to a lot of audiobooks. doesn't get me much writing time, but it at least lets me listen to a lot of books. And um, I find that I just, I get through them that way. And I do think that in order to improve and constantly improve your writing you do need to be reading because otherwise yeah you don't know what the trends are but also you you kind of lose touch with other writers and although you might never meet another writer at least if you're reading their works you kind of get an idea of oh well this works and sometimes I'll be reading something in a completely different genre and I'll go oh, that's really interesting. I see how they solved that problem there. And then that will help me to solve a problem that my character's having, you know, two, 250 years ago. So, um, <laughs> so so it's interesting how you can always find parallels in these things. And, um, and I can only ever recommend, I know it's hard when you're writing and juggling everything else, but I can only recommend reading as much as possible. That's good. Now, one thing too, which I mentioned, if we got time to, I just wanted to be able to address, because it's, it's even getting in more of a situation now with, with um, social media and AI. Is, mm. is a problem with haters and trolls on social media. And we just had a thing that just happened here in the United States where uh, someone created a fake telephone message from President Biden to people in New Hampshire saying, don't bother voting right now. Wait till the finals. Don't vote in the, in the primaries. And it, I mean, there's obviously quite a little flap here. But yeah. More and more, which science fiction has been talking about for a while. There's um, a, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, what's going to happen in your future science fiction, which is the uh, whole thing of of um, AI that can cause with fake fake news with the uh, deep fake and whatnot like that, mm -hmm. that, that can result in false messages. And you, it's getting more and more. You can't really tell what's what's true or not true on social media because people just make up stuff and then um, you get into like, wow, is this, did this really happen or not happen? How have you experienced any difficulties with any problems on social media or have you? Mm. It's, it's a really good question. Um, I've been quite fortunate in that the, the majority of feedback and I'd say comments that I get on social media tend to be very, very positive there's always going to be one or two where it's like, oh yeah, didn't like the book. It was rubbish or whatever. And those are just bad reviews and and you kind of have to take those with a pinch of salt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt because it always does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it will always hurt if someone says, because when you write or when you create anything, honestly, whether it's a picture or, or a you know piece of music or a photograph or anything, if someone, if you put that out there into the world, you're putting a little piece of your soul with it because it is yours and you mm -hmm. created it. So for someone to come along and say, oh yeah, well that was rubbish, I could have done better, immediately makes you feel like it was a personal attack on yourself. And I came to realize actually from doing my YouTube channel with, with my workplace and talking about photography and cameras, that the majority of the time, those people themselves who are saying those comments are never gonna write a book. They're never gonna actually get off their um Duff. bottoms <laughs> they're never gonna, yes they're never going to get off their rear ends and um and produce something and if they can and if they can do a better job then fantastic you know i i kind of look at it as like you can't you can't beat me because i want you to do well as well do you know what i mean it's yeah. like you can't get one up on me because i also want you to succeed so I've kind of adopted that viewpoint. It was it was tough. It was definitely tough at the beginning. Um, you're never supposed to read your negative reviews. Um, but then you know it's a negative until you read it. So 
Yeah, unless exactly. you've got a filter. Exactly. So so sometimes they end up on your plate or or whatever, and you do kind of have to steal yourself sometimes and go like, well, okay, this person didn't like it. No one is ever going to write something that everyone likes. Even the you know some of the most sure. amazing pieces of of writing I've ever read have had one star reviews or negative reviews so that's the beauty of art it's so subjective Mm -hmm. so there's that that side of things I mean when it comes to AI my viewpoint had always been that AI is supposed to do the stuff that we don't want to do so that the humans can go and do the things we do want to do so I would like AI to do all my housework for me so that (laughs) I can spend more time writing (laughs) um rather than AI taking over and doing the writing or or creating these things. And it, I do think it's a problem, but I think that we will, over the next few years, kind of see the course that it takes and probably learn to adapt like we have mm. with everything. Um, but yeah, I would say for anyone who's starting out, it's always tough right at the beginning to to read the feedback and particularly when it's not all favorable. But if you have a good sort of team of people behind you. I'm I'm lucky that my publisher does really believe in my work and my editors are all lovely. And my agent is lovely. They all really genuinely believe in my skill as a writer, which means that even if one person that I've never met before says, I don't like it, I've got, I've got whatever. You got a team that's got those. your back. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and as I say, it's all very subjective anyway. So they might've been having a bad day. You don't know. <laughs> they might've yeah. read it in when they were in a bad mood <laughs> yes and uh which we got coming out in, in an upcoming essay by uh, greg benford that he was told when he was starting out um i forget i forget if it's by van voter one of the other authors one of the founding judges and stuff was that the best way you can tell the, the best validation you have as an author is that royalty check you know right so you know, that's the one that that's the one that's the scene. That's your senior datum with respect yes. to your writing is like if people are buying your book, then that's that's ultimately what you want, because that's those, those are people. Most of them won't even say anything, but they'll buy your book. That's right. And so that's, that's why right. it's the ultimate best, best validation. So now. How do people, you know, because hopefully by the time people have done listening to this podcast, they're like, OK, I got to. I got to read these books, you know, so hopefully, hopefully <laughs> yeah. we've accomplished that because in addition to being a, you know, a learning exercise for people, you know, listening to this, I also want to be like, okay, I would, I'm going to check out this, this author here. So how do people find you? And um, I think we've established too, you don't have to read one before the other on these two novels, but how does somebody find you? And where do they find your books? So for me, the easiest place to find me is, on social media, I mean, on Instagram, I'm at Rebecca underscore reads books. And I put all of my reading and my writing up there. Um, and then also on on TikTok, I have the same handle. TikTok is is actually a great platform for actually connecting with readers. I found a lot more of my people, if that makes sense, people yeah. that want to talk to me on TikTok, which I find really interesting. Um and then in terms of finding my books, they are available in the UK. They're, they're both available in most bookstores. So, you know, if you go into your local bookshop or a Waterstones, you'll be able to find at least a copy um, in there of, of one of both of them. In the US, The House of Lost Wives is available in paperback and The Merchant's Daughter comes out in June in paperback. But it's already available both both of them are on Audible and on Kindle all over the world. So if you're an e-reader or a, an Audible listener, then uh, then you can pick them up that way. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. It's been great. Um, once I got into the book and then I was like, well, I'm looking forward to this interview here because I've got questions about the genre <laughs> and research and first person. So this, this, I'm is, so glad. this has been a good chat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Teachers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Teachers series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899 and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So Carnation has been making delicious milk products for one and a quarter centuries and is still going strong. If that doesn't show you good consumer support, 
I don't know what else does. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. For four decades, it's been going strong and is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Becky. Pleasure. Nice to speak to you.